Let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to meet and to discuss and to learn from each other and to improve our service to you and to our patients. I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I've worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York. Uh, I was the president of the Student Cancer Society of three medical schools in Washington, D.C. Uh, I am the product. I have been the director of the Lifestyle Center of America in Oklahoma, and I've been involved with Weimar and Wildwood and lifestyle centers for a long time. And people come to us in any of those settings with cancer. But those who come to a lifestyle center often come with a lot of other issues. And I'd like to start off by presenting a case. Now, this is, this is actually a real case. We'll call her Angela. 39-year-old white female attorney presented with a history of scanty whitish discharge from her right nipple, about six months' duration. The discharge was barely visible, and she had, not, she had noticed it uh, in her undergarment because it would stick to her right nipple. She came to seek medical attention only after she developed itching in the right nipple and areola region. There was no history of mass or pain in the breast, and with no mass, she thought it would just go away. Do you guys know anybody like that? Well, have you seen in your practice somebody who comes in with, uh, with issues that are similar? The clinical evaluation did not reveal any mass in the underlying breast, axillary, or supraclavicular regions. The discharge was thick and whitish in color, uh, but so scanty that we had to have gentle massage to extract material for making smears. Cytological evaluation of the nipple discharge smears showed highly pleomorphic cells with uh, hypochromatic nuclei, prominent nucleoli, coarse chromatin pattern, and increased nuclear cytoplasmic ratio. Calcifications, all of which indicate was wishing that we could, because it's much nicer to give good news than to give bad news, right? So the diagnosis. It's cancer. And somebody has to tell her it's cancer. But Angela is a Seventh-day Adventist. And Angela says, I want this treated naturally. Now, if I have been the doctor confronting this situation once, it's been a thousand times. What does she mean by treating it naturally? What do you think? No chemotherapy. You think that's it? That's all? No chemotherapy. How about no surgery? How about no radiation? How about no nothing? How about, doctor, give me some Essiac? There must be some herb that's out there that will take care of this. Right? 
Now, I don't want to polarize things just in that direction because this isn't always the case. But what do you do when this is the case? Now, I wish we had the whole afternoon to be able to talk about how we would approach somebody like this. But we don't, so we have to move forward. But we need to understand, cancer creates an existential crisis, a spiritual crisis in just about anyone, even someone who says, I'm an atheist. There is something that happens with them because now they, they feel mortal. And cancer has an uncanny way of doing this to people. The diagnosis of cancer, usually there's deep spiritual questioning about life and death, even for people who say that they're not spiritual. Now, of course, there are some people who just don't care. I remember having a, a, one guy who said, you know, he, he, was, he was culturally Jewish. And of all of the patients uh, whom, with whom I had a relationship and would usually accept us to have a, 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 a prayerful encounter with each other. This man is one who said, no, no. Uh, he used foul language when, his, uh, when he got the diagnosis of lung cancer. He used foul language when the therapy was not working. He used foul language when he had superior vena cava syndrome and he came into the hospital drowning in his own secretions. He forbade me to pray. I didn't obey <laughs> because you don't always have to pray with somebody. You can pray for them. He forbade me and the rest of the team from calling any of his family members. We disobeyed. We called it. He said he didn't believe in God, but nuclear cytoplasmic radiation. This was all indicative of high-grade malignancy. She had a mammogram, was positive, showing extensive microcalcifications, and I have those. This is the cytology. And you can't really see this, but you can see some little spickling there. Those are the micro. He got everything resolved, and he died in peace. I don't know if he died in peace, but he died. And he appeared to be at peace. He had family in New York and San Francisco, and they came down, and they surrounded him. And even though he said, I shouldn't and we shouldn't inform them, this was therapeutic for him. He had issues that he needed to deal with. Cancer. The existential crisis of cancer is commonly referred to as a search for meaning. The crisis is a psychological one and a spiritual one. We could say psychosocial, psychospiritual uh, issue. Here's what one person says. The tragedy of cancer often holds the seeds of grace that wakes us up. Powerful trauma of cancer can open people to really profound spiritual issues. 
What does it mean to be a human being? What are my gifts? What is my purpose? Why am I here? People go through some of this. They won't always tell you, and I would suspect that there are some people who probably don't go through this, but I'll tell you that most of the people that I have seen with a cancer diagnosis, that uh, they go through some kind of questioning like this. And so to work with them is a very special, uh, it's a privilege for us to be there with someone with cancer. So we had to discover what people's questions are. In Angela's case, her question was why? Why do I have breast cancer? Why? Now, do you think I can, under, I can ask, answer that question? When I was a medical student, uh, I remember with people with heart disease and whatnot, you know, I learned pathophysiology, and I really liked people. So I would explain to them, and I'd draw you know, little things that, uh, <laughs> all the, uh, you know, the, the covers that we had on, <laughs> the paper covers, paper. The nurses would kill me if they found me writing on anything else. But the paper covers on the, <laughs> on the thing, I would draw uh, pictures and whatnot, and, and they really enjoyed that. But, but at the end of the day, they oftentimes were not satisfied with my explanations, even though I, I, I explained to them the pathophysiology. And one day it occurred to me that I was asking, or I was, I was answering a question that they were not asking. They were asking a bigger why question. They were asking a transcendental question, why? And I was giving them a pathophysiological answer. Why? Angela's question, I have no family history, I live healthily, I'm a Christian, I'm a vegetarian, I watch my weight, I have a clean conscience regarding my work. Why is this affecting me? The answer, you are a human being living on planet Earth. I, I don't know of any better answer. Of course, I wouldn't say it that way to Angela. <laughs> We'd have to approach it. But this is how it is. And we hurt. And so if Angela is going, to, is going to grasp at things, and she's going to go on the internet, and she's going to call up her friends, and she's going to find some stuff, okay, that says, this will give me hope. There is something that I can do. I don't have to suffer uh, this thing, and I'm not going to take those poisons. If Angela were to say that, I should not be upset with Angela. I should, in fact, have compassion for her. But the medical literature is replete with reports of doctors and their response to people who, who, are, who, who want to go this route of these weird therapies, these, these things that are unproven, that they go on the internet, they find some kind of stuff, and they go to the doctor's office and they say, I don't want to have the poison that you're going to give me. Give me this. And how do we answer that? And how are Seventh-day Adventists, who have a health message and all this good stuff, how do we approach someone who comes with a story and who wants to do things differently from what we might believe might be the best way to go? How, how do we do that? And what's the, what's the issues 
that we have to deal with behind it. Well, I have found that to understand some of the limitations of what we know and what we don't know, and understanding what cancer is and how cancer works, uh, it has helped a lot of patients to come to a better understanding, even though I can't answer that why question. You see, we don't treat cancer, and we shouldn't treat cancer. Now, before you, before you think I'm not scientific or I'm not a doctor, you see, we treat people who have cancer. That's what we do. We're treating people. We're not treating the cancer. And so our focus really has to be on people. And then we can explain to them the process of cancer, the, 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 the natural and unnatural things about cancer. And that usually brings us to a better understanding as we move along with what we're going to do about this. Okay? Each patient is an individual. You cannot say, because that person was treated this way, and that's what happened, then if I do the same thing here, this is going to happen too. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. We might want it to work that way, but it doesn't work that way. People have body, mind, and spirit. And when we are working with them, especially with something as grave as cancer is, we need to take care of the whole person. We need to deal with them physically, mentally, and spiritually. Even if they deny the spiritual part we have to be sensitive to it. Am I making sense? And sometimes the questions about what they will do physically have their origin in what they believe spiritually. Additionally, what they're going through with a cancer diagnosis is not just a body diagnosis. They have a spiritual issue, and they have mental, psychological issues that are happening with them as they're going through this. This is from an organization, uh, and you can find it on the internet. Uh, this is copyrighted stuff, but, uh, but the idea and the ideas here that are expressed are, are very germane. We need to be able to notice what's going on with the individual. We need to pray, even if not with them, pray for them. We need to listen, and I will talk a little bit more about that. We need to ask questions, and we need to ask questions in, uh, in a sensitive and meaningful way that will lead to either revelation on the part of the individual or getting closer to an answer that the person is requiring. We need to love them, we need to be welcoming of them, we need to facilitate their doing better and working with their family and working out. Uh, and for us, in general, in our offices and whatnot, we need to work together and serve together so that our staff is actually as sensitive to what's going on with our patients as we are. And sometimes there might even be more. All right, so now, here we're going to go with the, the stuff.
Cancer occurs as a result of a genomic abnormality, mostly developed after birth and accelerated in incidence after mid-age. This is the reality. This is the commonality of cancer. Of all of the things that we know about cancer, this we can say for sure. Cancer is a genetic problem. But it's not a hereditary problem <laughs> in the sense that not most cancers, most cancers are not hereditary in the sense that there's a genetic marker for this cancer and that passes on. No. But I want to say that some of it is passed on in families just the same. Some of it has to be pa is passed on epigenetically, right? And we talked a little bit about that last night. But some of it is passed on by the habits and the lifestyle that the parents have, that the children grow up in, and that becomes normal for the children. So if we have an oncogenic lifestyle by the parents, they transmit an oncogenic lifestyle to the children. So we learn to live that way, and that's normal. But we're inviting cancer. And this, uh, this process, the older we get, the more likely we are to get cancer, because we have an accumulated effect over the years as our cells replicate. Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I think I, I ought to mention it here. Every time our cells, one cell replicates, okay, it leaves two or three mis uh, or, or abnormal uh, replicates. Um, DNA uh, replications in the progeny. So much so that right now I can tell you that all of us, okay, uh, since we're more than at least a year old, right, all of us, our cells are not equal to each other. Because the errors that occur are not systematic. So we're all chimeric, uh, to use it, the technical term, because our cells are not really equal. We start off being equal, but when they multiply, this one may have errors you know, in you know, chromosome 26, and this one may have errors in chromosome 29. But these things just accumulate over time. They don't necessarily cause any problem, per se. But later on, because of this accumulated uh, genetic aberration, we might end up being more prone to developing cancer. You see, I believe that when we were created, not only the process of replication was perfect, but God put in place, and we have it up to today, a system of checking to make sure that the replication is perfect, okay? Now, some of you may remember back when we used to have uh, floppy disks. You guys, anybody here remembers floppy disks? Okay, a few of you, <laughs> all right. And if you remember, when, we were, when, when you had to make a copy of the disk, it was at least a two-stage process. It would have this thing going across the screen that looked so slow, and it would say copying and enough. 5%, 6%, 7%, you know, and it's going across and across. And finally, it gets to 100%, but instead of your being able to take that disk out, 
there was another process it went through. Anybody remember what that was? Verifying. Verifying. And it was just as slow, blisteringly slow, right? Until it was all done, and now you can take the disc out. How do you think they learned that that should be the process for, from our DNA? Okay? They were replicating a process, a biological process that God put into place. But here's the problem. Because of sin, and this is now my, my view, you won't see this in any science book, right? My view is even the process of replication and the process of verification tainted by sin. So our verification is not 100% anymore. So what we end up with is a system in which it's certified, okay, yes, this is the progeny, but the progeny has some errors in it. It's not perfect. And therefore we have this problem. Because that will give a problem uh, later on when we are transcribing genes. If this is a part of a gene, it can cause a problem later on, right? Okay. So how do these mutations and these problems occur? Now, most of you may remember this from uh, medical school or residency or, or somewhere, but you know, we can have deletions. A piece of a, a chromosome is just gone in the progeny. It's gone. It never got passed on. We may have duplications. So we have one thing and it was copied twice, so the next chromosome that is the progeny ends up with two pieces of that. Now, if both of them get turned on, you have double the product, okay? And that may be a good thing, as well as maybe a bad thing. We have inversions. So instead of uh, reading one, two, three, four, five, it might be reading five, four, three, two, one. And you might say, well, that's not a big problem. Well, yes, it would be. If you were to go and you were to try to find where I live, and I live on 12345 Oakwood Drive, uh, that is not the same as 54321 Oakwood Drive, right? You'd end up at somebody else's house, all right? So, so that's an issue. And then we have insertion. So we have one uh, chromosome here, and we have a piece that's put into it, right? This came from chromosome 4, got put into chromosome 20, and now we have this, this weird combination of things. And these things happen with us, and I want to say, all the time. Every day, the estimate is that we produce about 10,000 abnormal, potentially cancerous cells. Every day. But most of us don't get cancer. Because we have backup systems. God put backup systems in place. Okay? So, what happens? We have environmental agents that damage the DNA, chemicals, radiation, viruses, etc. So, the normal cell, actually, uh, when it goes through, it's, it's bombarded with this stuff. It goes through, there's some DNA damage, and then there's successful repair. But there's still a trace that there's a problem, right? And then, sometimes, we might have a failed repair. And that failed repair leads to mutations in somatic cells, activation of growth-promoting oncogenes, impaired apoptosis. In other words, the cell does not die the way it's supposed to die. It lingers on, right? 
and we may actually have inactivation of tumor suppressor genes, and therefore we end up with these altered gene products, proteins, abnormal structure and regulatory proteins, and then we produce from that a malignant tumor. We're going to go through this process a couple of times, but this is, this is more or less a schematic of what happens when we form cancer. We start off with normal cells, and with a series of irregularities, we end up with an abnormal cell. And that cell does not die the way it should. It doesn't listen the way it should. It doesn't function the way it should. It becomes autonomous. It's a rogue. Okay? Now, if we look at this from the point of view of what may do this, what may cause this damage, we have some endogenous things over on this side, and we have some exogenous things over on this side. Smoke, radiation, metals, viruses, other genotoxins can damage the DNA, and this can be passed on. Or we have endogenous things, diet-related things like bile acids, macrophage, and neutrophil-produced uh, uh, reactive uh, uh, oxygen right, species, and that can cause DNA damage. And what are the things that will do this? Exercise or not exercise, rest or not rest, emotional disrespectifications, all of which indicate she has a problem. Now, do you think when she came, she really wanted to have this diagnosis? No. Do you think the doctor who was taking care of her? Because there are some church-attending people who actually have worse health because they attend church, because their relationship with God and their relationship is a, is a guilt-laden uh, do's and don'ts one, and this has been shown to be actually detrimental to the health as opposed to a positive influence on the health. Okay, so church attendance, abstemiousness, you know, being a little bit choosy and not eating as much as uh, we might often like, okay? Uh, even fasting, comorbidities. If we have other illnesses, these things will affect what happens with us chemically. Whether we're able to cope or we're coping well, whether we have metabolic programming from when we were in mother's womb, whether we have the metabolic syndrome, what's happening with our microbiome, all of these things affect the chemical constituency of our bodies. And this produces an environment, a microenvironment around our cells, and those cells will respond to that microenvironment. The cells exist in soup. And we have a part to play in making that soup. Where we live, how we live, what we do, what we choose. Whether we exercise, we don't exercise, whether we sleep, you know, what's happening with us emotionally, etc. All of these things affect this. And this will affect our ability to be able to produce uh, cellular offspring that are in good shape or not. We have genetic predispositions, we have life stresses, we have prenatal insults, genetic predispositions, life stresses. If these things outweigh that, we end up with disease. If they don't, we end up with no disease. Okay? So if we look at this, we can say, hmm, we have all these ingredients. These are all uh, risk factor things. And we put them in the pots. And what we end up with is a soup. And that soup is the microenvironment in which our cells live. And that microenvironment, how we make it, or how it is made, makes all the difference in the world. 
because what's in the microenvironment will influence what that cell becomes exposed to, and therefore the pressures on that cell for its replication. So we could have called this one making good soup, <laughs> because there are things that we can do to help make the soup better, and there are things that we can do to help make the soup worse. Okay? So we have a normal cell. That cell, because of what is bathed in, may have chemical carcinogens that will induce a change. We end up with a tumor cell. And then from there, we have progression of that tumor cell because it will have variants of that cell that will produce different cell lines because all of them will have offspring. So we have proliferation of genetically unstable cells. Some of them will die off because they can't sustain uh, independent life, but some of them will move on to produce a tumor. And that tumor may be a clonal expansion of surviving variants, so that all of the cells in that tumor may not be the same. And that produces a problem for us when we have to treat it. Because we may have something that will work for 95% of the cells in that tumor, but 5% would be resistant to what we're trying to do. You get the idea? So this is looking at what kinds of approaches we can use. There are things that might be blocking agents that will block the DNA uh, repair uh, process. These things are chemoprotective, right? We have things that might su suppress going from initiation to promotion. Uh, initiation and going back and DNA repair, this is uh, a reversible process, but once we get to promotion, it's no longer a reversible process. You see, there are some things that you, uh, so, some things that you go in one direction, you can't go backwards, okay? Um, uh, I was going, I, I, I like to tell this story, I was going on a, on a trip with some uh, with a group of young people, and they said, you know, you're really going to enjoy this, you're really going to like this, okay? And, yeah, it was, it was pretty good, but we got to this, to this part on the trail where you had to jump over a waterfall, okay? It was about as... I'm not exaggerating, it was about that, that much, okay? Had to jump. All right. And, of course... Uh, I was not as young as the other people who were with me, and they said, oh, good, and they went over, right? And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, huh, I wonder what's down there in that water. <laughs> well, finally, I did. I jumped over. Everything was okay. Got out of the water, and they said, good, that's the little one. <laughs> the little one. <laughs> Oh, no, where we're going, there's a bigger one. You're really like that, right? At which point I said, it's okay, I'm going back. Here was the problem. How do you jump up a waterfall? You can't. I couldn't go back. So I went on and I found another road. <laughs> okay, it took me quite a bit of time to get back. Uh, but I did. I did not go over that other waterfall. But the point I'm trying to make here is there are some things when you go in one direction, you can't go back. You jump down, jumping up that distance. I can't do it. I can't climb up a waterfall. Right? And so some things, some processes in the cells, when they, when they move in one direction, 
when they get there, there is no process in that cell for it to go back to what it used to be before. Now, some of you, if you're like me, I've worked in the computer industry, you do something with your computer, and there is no undo. <laughs> Have you ever experienced that? No undo. This is what happens with cancer. There is no known undo. So you move from here and you move on, and there has to be something else that has to work with this system. Once you have cancer, what you're going to do with it? Right? Now, God has put uh, in us some really interesting systems to help deal with this. I just thought we would talk about this little war here because we, we have to fight against this. Our bodies are at war against cancer cells, and we're producing them all the time. Today, you're producing about 10,000. I am too, okay? So if we look at normal cell life and the cancer cell, the normal cell is one that's for life. The cancer cell means death, right? The normal cell is orderly. The cancer cell is a rogue. The normal cell is obedient. You know, our cells are such, <laughs> so obedient that uh, if we get a cut and we have to heal, we heal up to the surface and no more. It doesn't continue unless we have keloids or something. It just it comes up there. And you know how it does that, right? It listens to the other cells that say up to here and no more, right? The liver, you can take a piece of the liver, transplant it, and it will produce a liver that seems about the same size as the liver that you originally had. Why? It's because it has programming to say it's up to here and no more. But when you have a tumor, it doesn't respect any of those boundaries, right? Not obedient. Our normal cells are team players, cancer cells autonomous. Normal cells work for harmony, they're harmonious. Cancer cells lack harmony. Normal cells are interdependent. One depends on the other. The cancer cells, well, they're pseudo-independent because they are dependent on something, right? They're dependent on the human being to live. They're not very smart, I mean, as cells go. They're not very smart because if they had their way, they will win. And when they lose, they die. It's a stupid system. Somebody ought to talk to them and tell them, look, this is, this is not getting you anywhere. But we can't. I want to tell you, I see a relationship between the way we look at cancer and the way things are happening to what happens with sin. Can you see the similarity? Yeah. Normal cells follow the rules. Cancer cells forcefully takes from others. Normal cells provide for others. Cancer cells, their success brings death and destruction. What a system. But God didn't leave us defenseless. He gave us a cancer surveillance system. But that too has been affected by sin. So it's not perfect. I wish we had some little guys like this that we could just inject <laughs> that goes around and look for the cancer and, you know, gets rid of it, right? Okay, well, because of, genomically, uh, because of the genomic abnormality, abnormal proteins are expressed on the membranes of cancer cells and can usually be recognized by immune cells, such as T cells, cytotoxic T cells, natural killer cells, lax or lymphokine-activated K cells, 
ADCCs, or antibody-dependent cytotoxic cells, and macrophages. They all can identify which cell is a cancer cell and which cell is normal. As a matter of fact, uh, they have even shown this, and uh, I wish I had um, some of those slides, with the cells extending their pseudopods, touching the cancer cell or touching a, a, a normal cell, uh, looking for the markers, and if the markers are not there that are expected, usually they're HLA uh, histocompatibility uh, markers, if they're not what they're supposed to be, then those cells, they hang on, they use a protein called microporin, right? And they make a little space between themselves and the, uh, and the tumor cell. They inject some uh, toxic enzymes, and then they pull back. And of course, they kill that cell. This is what they do. So they look for markers, right? This is uh, a cell that has a marker for T cells. So the killer T cells attach, they see that marker, they know this is a cancer cell, they attack that. However, they don't have markers for the NK cells, or the natural killer cells, so therefore the natural killer cells uh, cannot uh, affect that particular cancer cell. On this side, we have killer T cells that don't have any place to dock, so they, they, they don't affect this cancer cell. But with this one, we have markers on the surface that are expressed where the natural killer cells can attach, and once they attach, they know. So they begin to produce antibodies that are uh, against those markers. Other T cells, other T lymphocytes, and other macrophages come and they see that, and so now what you have is an army that's poised to say, if you see this marker, kill it. Okay? And they go after it. They go all through the body looking for those things. Here we have a cytotoxic T cell and the uh, perforin and the uh, granizymes. What they do is they look for the marker, they have the marker, and therefore if there's a marker, they know that's a target cell. They inject their, uh, their um, enzymes, and lo and behold, they kill the cell. Uh, in this case, they're looking for markers, and this uh, cytotoxic T cell sees the markers, the, the uh, the, the specific markers that they're looking for, and they can kill the tumor cell that way. However, in the absence of that, they don't have it, but because of the other markers that they have, the NK cells will be able to attack that and kill that. So we have, we have multiple backup systems for looking at, at cancer cells and destroying them. Right? Now, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. Because on the one hand, if we can prevent the cancer from developing, that's a genetic issue that we're dealing with, and we can take care of the cancer that way. We, we don't have to have the cancer if we can prevent it. Additionally, if the cancer is being developed in the initiation stage in particular that's reversible, if we can do something to intervene and make it go backwards, then that will be helpful. Or if we have another way, something that's toxic to cancer cells, and we give that, we can kill the cancer cells without having to use the immune system. The other is, of course, to enhance the immune system in such a way that the immune system will be able to find these uh, cancer cells and take care of them that way. So we have one that's a defensive posture, the other one is an offensive posture, and then we have a third option, which is to go after the cancer cells ourselves with some other uh, kind of armamentarium. Okay, uh, let me go to this one. So, here is the schematic. We have cancer. 
How do we approach it? On one side, we kill it. On the other side, we support the killers. Am I making sense? So this is direct killing of the cancer. This is supporting the things that kill the cancer. And then, how do we kill it? We can either starve it or we can poison it. It can't eat, can't survive. We poison it, well, it's toxic, right? On this side, if we're supporting the killers, what we're looking for is either to increase the numbers or to increase the function. Now, here's what we shouldn't do. While we're doing this, we shouldn't feed the cancer. Right? We shouldn't feed the cancer. And on this side, we shouldn't tie the hands of the killers of the cancer. And here's the marvelous thing. The so-called natural approach that we use of using diet and exercise and those kinds of things. They don't feed the cancer. They starve the cancer. And they support the killers. And they don't tie their hands. And we can do that naturally. How do you like that? Now, am I telling you that we're going to cure cancer that way? No. But what we do is we give our bodies a fighting chance. So that whether we use this alone, or we use it in combination with poisons, toxins, surgery, you know. Now we have to deal with what is it that that person wants to do as they understand the context of what can be done. So what we say is we make good soup. What good soup does is it strengthens the killers, that is those cytotoxic T cells and the natural killer cells and the ADCC, etc. And we inhibit the growth and the spread of the offender. So we, don't, we, we want to stop it in its tracks. We want it to not produce the angiogenic factors that will bring in the blood supply and therefore cause it to proliferate and spread elsewhere. Right? So we, we're, do, we're cutting off its supply. Right? Now, how do we do that? Well, these things here on the left either uh, scientifically have been shown to affect... Uh, cancer cell survival in vitro and in laboratory animals and some in humans. Here's what it is. Exercise. Can you believe that? That physical exercise, but not too much, actually helps in treating and preventing cancer. Are you aware of that? Okay. <laughs> a marathon is too much. Okay? And here's the reason why too much becomes a problem. When you, when you exceed the, the threshold, you end up depressing the immune system. So that's a problem. We don't want to do things, we don't want to do things that will depress our immune system. Getting adequate rest. So you're going to ask me, how much is enough, right? <laughs> but not too much, okay? And, and for most people, we're looking at seven to eight hours per 24 hours, better at night, okay? And again, with the chronobiology and whatnot, we, we mentioned a little bit about that last night. Uh, this has been shown also in cancer because of the cancer cell cycles. 
And even the therapeutic agents that we use to treat cancer, they have a chronopharmacology. There are some uh, uh, cancer-treating agents that if you use it at the right time, the amount that you use is much less and the toxicity is very little. Okay? So that becomes an issue. Emotional distress, being at peace. Anxiety, depression, guilt, fear, peace, gratitude, forgiveness. This is a big one. I'll tell you, uh, in, in my practice in lifestyle medicine, where people come with, with cancer, I have found somewhere at least 70 to 80% of the individuals, they can tell me within the last five years of some event, some issue that occurred with them that they haven't gotten over yet. They had this, this traumatic thing and they're holding on to it. They're still holding on. And, and sometimes when you talk to them, th their, their hands do this kind of stuff. And they get tense and their jaw tightens up. Right? Or they begin to cry. Or they shake. Or they get steely and they look into the future. Or they say, I don't want to talk about it. I, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I say, that one you have to give up. You have to come to grips. Yes, yes, he did you, he did you really bad. You need to forgive him. Because to not forgive him is like drinking poison and expecting him to die. It doesn't work that way. You. And if you're like me, it's hard to forgive. And that's where being forgiven by God through Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. When we realize the depth of his forgiveness for us. Forgiveness, clear conscience, social relations, church attendance. You've seen this list before. We had it before, right? And then... Helping patients. Here are just a few things that, I, that I, I tell patients. Look, this is not an exhaustive list, and I'm not trying to exhaust you with this one. But I tell them, regardless of what kind of therapy you're going to use, if you decide to use anything, these are things that have been shown to be helpful. All right? So here are some of them. One, a total vegetarian dietary pattern. Now, I can show them the research that shows cells in vitro that have been cancer cells that have been bathed with, the, uh, with blood from people who are vegetarian and people who are, well, total vegetarian, omnivores, and, uh, and uh, lacto-vegetarians, etc. Right? And you look at the proliferation of those cancer cells. All of them are reduced okay, by being placed in broth from people with these different dietary habits. But it's most reduced in the people who are total vegetarians. Just, that's, that's there. That's literature. You can show that, right? Abundant vegetables. And then we're going to get into the debate about raw and cooked and juiced and smoothie and whole, right? Yes, raw, raw, do raw, right? But there are some things that you, you ought to cook. For instance, uh, are you aware that lycopene 
is you have more lycopene from the tomato if it's cooked and if it's cooked with some acid, right? And it's not some magical turning on. What it is, is it's a cis and trans form of lycopene, right? And when you cook it and you have acid, you get a form that is much more uh, bioavailable to us. So, so there's some things that we need to cook, all right? Uh, juicing and what... I, I'm not going to get into that, that debate. That's not the purpose of, of this talk. We can do that some other time. Uh, much fruit, specific foods and herbs that we can use medicinally. And there are lists of these things. And there are books that deal with this. Uh, there the, are the things that have been shown in animals. There have been things that have been shown in humans. Uh, M.D. Anderson, some years ago, looked at something as simple as garlic. Right? Simple as garlic. They found 27 organic compounds in garlic that were tumor-suppressing. 27. So, I'm going to come around and I'm going to be uh, not just looking and listening to you, I'm going to be smelling you. <laughs> okay? If I can't smell the garlic, then you're not doing what you... No, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> uh, but stuff like this, uh, I mean, this is, this is de rigueur, all right? We, we could find it. Healthcare, Seventh-day Adventist healthcare providers is to help people with their hope and to keep them with their eyes on the prize because we have a blessed hope. There's a day when we'll have no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more dying, no more cancer. All of this will be passed away. Right? So hang on until then. And yes, some people die. They do everything that they can and they die. But we pray that they die with the blessed hope. Amen. And one day, one day, Jesus will call their name. And the trump of God will sound. Ay, ay, ay. I'm looking forward to that day. We need to help people to have peace and to make reconciliation with God and with others. You know, that, that famous story of Hezekiah, when... Uh, when the prophet went to him and said, Hezekiah, this is unto death. You know? He gave him a little prescription of what to do. Make, right, make things right, because you're going to die. Get your, your house in order. Well, yes, you know, we need to tell people. We need to help them. Sometimes, well, of course, you know, they go through the whole cycle of uh, denial and whatnot. So, so we, we work with them along with this. We use motivational interviewing with them, and we kind of get from them the things that they are willing to do at this time, but we have to help move them along, not saying that they're going to die, but rather to help them to make the decision as to what they want to do about this, this invader that they have. Sleep, rest, recreation, uh, outdoor living, God and spiritual nurture. <clears throat> and then, of course, the appropriate medical attention. These are the things that we... Uh, that we recommend for everyone, okay? Now, we need to avoid answering the question, what would you do if you were in my situation? Do your patients ever ask you that? Doctor, what would you do if you were me, right? What would you do? So how do you answer that? How do you? Well, if I were you, I would... <laughs> is that what we say? 
No, be very careful. Don't go, that, don't go down that route. I usually say, first of all, you're putting me in an awkward situation. Because as much as I know about you, I don't know everything about you. I am not really in your situation. So I don't know what I would do if I were in your situation because I can't understand your situation. And what is important is not what I would do, but what you would do. Would you like me to help you with that? Let's move to something else. What would you do? Here are some of the facts, right? I have found that most people make decisions based on fear. So I try to find out what they're afraid of. When it comes to cancer, fear. What are you afraid of? Pain, suffering, guilt. I may have caused this. And I tell you, our church is not uh, easy on people who get sick. We're not easy. We're not easy. And if you happen to be a church leader, or a physician, or a health leader, or some health person, and you get sick in the church, you might want to change churches. I have known people who have done just that. They can't face their friends and colleagues because they know they're going to be judged by them. We should create spaces where people are not judged, but loved. And it's not to condone somebody who's doing the wrong thing or the bad thing or what they know they shouldn't do. They already know that. They already know that. Instead, we should help encourage them in doing something better. Let our speech be always with grace, seasoned with a little salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer everyone. So listen respectfully with your ears and with your heart. Try to understand what is said and probe for what is not said. We should use motivational interviewing. We should help them widen their consideration as appropriate. Sometimes people are too narrow in their view and they can't see the horizons. There are some people who are very selfish about what they're thinking. They don't realize that their decision and their whatever that might be actually is going to affect all of the people who they love and who love them. So somebody who says, it's okay, I can die, I have no problem, I have no problem with dying, right? Well, who's going to come to your funeral? Well, everybody expects all of these people to come to their funeral. So what do you think they will be saying when you die? You think they'll be happy? They'll say, oh, she's dead. Oh, everything's fine. No, there are people who will miss you. Consider them too. That's what I mean by widening their, their horizon. So, they, so they're making a decision that's not just, uh, you know, woe is me, focus on, on this uh, alone. Yet at the same time, help them to keep their focus on what's important. What is important to you? And that's where motivational interviewing uh, helps. What is important to you? Gently debunk the myths and the life commands, not to convince them of another way, but to help them to find the truth 
and to be freed by that truth. Give the patient time to resolve issues and give the family time to resolve issues too. Don't overpromise. Know your own limitations. As a physician, sometimes it's hard for us to say, I don't know. But it's important when we don't know that we at least know we don't know. And we don't pull the wool over the patient's eyes as if we knew. But we can always find out. And if we can't, we can refer the person to someone who can. Help them psycho-spiritually and help them to use a biblical worldview. This is the worldview that we espouse. And involve other professionals and helpers as appropriate. There are some people who are lonely. And you know what? What they need? Someone to listen. They need friends. And we can help supply that. Because we have a church filled with people. Sometimes they need counseling. And we may be able to refer them to a counselor who will spend time with them. Someone who is of the same uh, mindset that we have in being able to care for people and not just treat them like a number. And ultimately, our thoughts change us. And I hope today, our thoughts will change for the good. Thank you very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.